Friends, we're going to uh, get stuck into the Word right now, so uh, I'm wondering if we, uh, if we might have a, a bow our heads in prayer as we uh, prepare uh, to get stuck into this concept of being born again. Friends, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we say thank you that we can gather here in this place. Thank you that we can open up your Word unencumbered. Thank you that we have your word to us in our language, in our mother tongue. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that we needn't fear oppression in this country. Thank you that we can gather together and fling wide open the doors and invite the people in to say, come and hear your word, come and hear your message of love to us, Father. So this morning as we study this passage from John's Gospel, we pray that you might draw near. We pray that you might be using this moment to perhaps see something we hadn't seen before in this well-known passage for many of us. We pray that you might keep us humble. We pray that you might keep us teachable. We pray that you might reveal yourself to us and we pray that you might challenge us to be born again, to be made new this morning. In Jesus' name, the people said, Amen. Amen. Well, it is a new chapter in the church's life. This is a new beginning. It feels like a rebirth, doesn't it? I've been looking forward to this moment. I've been so looking forward to seeing all of you once again. I know different people have different sort of personality traits, and some people quite appreciated uh, the lockdown, and it made life easier in some ways, didn't it? For me, with my personality type, you've got to know that I'm an in-person person, if that makes sense. So I love seeing you in the flesh. I love being able to shake hands and hug and, and chat in the flesh. But this is a real restart. It's a rebooting of God's church. And it's not just for us here at Church in the Marketplace. This is right around the world. God's church is asking itself some really tough questions, some really penetrating questions. The church is asking itself, what does it mean to be church in the 21st century now? I mean, now that not everyone is here together in this room and we have folk watching at home right now, are we still church even if we're not all together in the one place at the one time? Is, are we still church? Are we still in community if we're sitting at home under the doona watching church? Are you still part of the community then? Well, there you go. Some people think yes, others maybe not. I'm getting some shakes and some nods. We're, we're working it out as we go. I'm afraid I don't have all the answers for you this morning, but I do know that God's church is undergoing a fairly substantial change. The, the numbers coming out of the US where they've already returned in, in places that attendance is down about 20 to 30% across the board. People have simply gotten out of the habit of coming to church. Some people have simply worked out they don't perhaps really need church. Maybe they don't really need God. The upside is that the church has been connecting with people in new and fresh ways. I have heard from people that have been connecting with us online that would never have walked in the front door. People who perhaps aren't, don't even live physically uh, nearby, they, they couldn't get here. Too many hours drive, but they've been enjoying fellowship with us online, being part of what we sort of might call an extended church in the marketplace family. 
On a Tuesday night, many of us have been gathering with people from the far north coast and from down in the Illawarra. We've made friends online as part of the extended church in the marketplace family. So it does feel like this is a bit of a Kairos moment, a new beginning. It's difficult because some people simply are not returning. They're simply not connecting. But it does seem as though this is an opportunity, that this is an opportunity to, to think again, to start again to maybe shed some things that aren't helpful and to maybe start some new things that God is calling us to do. So what better way of thinking about this moment of rebirth than to look at this very famous passage from John's Gospel. Now you might know John chapter 3 from the famous John chapter 3 verse 16. I'm not even making, all, making it all the way to verse 16 this morning. I've only got the first 15 verses this morning. If you've got it open in front of you, you might like to grab your device, uh, you might like to grab your iPad or your iPhone, you might want to bring your Bible along. Let's get into a, a culture, let's build a culture of getting into the Word here at church in the marketplace, of, of note taking, of carrying it with us throughout the week. Have we got it on the screen? Uh, John chapter 3, verses 1 uh, through to 15. It's titled uh, Jesus Teaches Nicodemus. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night. When? And he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one, can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can, cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you, you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe me. How then would you believe me if I speak of heavenly things? No one who has ever gone into heaven, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Born again. This is the passage that we get this most famous metaphor of what it means to be a Christian, of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be born again. Unfortunately, it gets a pretty bad rap, doesn't it? Being born again gets some pretty bad press. Did you know that the pollsters will tell us that Westerners actually would prefer not to be living next to a born again Christian? That's pretty damning, isn't it? They would actually prefer not to be associated with a born-again Christian. Being born again carries with it some very negative connotations, doesn't it? 
I think what people think of when they think of being a born-again Christian, they mean one of those pushy Christians. They mean one of those Christians a little bit too, too in-your-face about it, a little bit too serious about it, a little bit too keen, a little bit too keen to tell you about their faith, who are keen to sort of you know, share their faith with you, want to change your they want to change my mind. They'll just leave me alone, these, these pushy people. They prefer their Christianity nice and domesticated. People prefer their Christianity nice and in the sort of the, the building where people gather on a Sunday and a bunch of little old ladies gather together to sing hymns and eat cucumber sandwiches. That's what the world thinks we Christians do. I had a wonderful ex- example of this in my own life, in my own ministry, in my in our previous placement. Um, some neighbours bought a house next door to the church. Now, the church had been there for 150 years. <laughs> They moved in and started complaining about the noise. We're actually drawn into mediation. It got quite nasty. Our youth group was a bit too loud. Our kids' club was a bit too loud. And truth be told, the mum's Zumba class at 6am was probably a little bit too loud. And so we went to mediation. And I kid you not, these are the exact words that were told to me. We knew we were moving next door to a church, but we thought that we would be getting nice church noise. Nice church noise. I think they seriously thought that church existed for an hour on Sunday and then some little old ladies would be eating cucumber sandwiches. That was their impression. So the idea that the church would be vibrant and active with young people making noise and making a mess and putting holes in the wall was completely foreign to them. People don't like this idea of Christianity actually impacting people's lives, of making me feel a little bit uncomfortable. They like their Christianity domesticated and quiet and over there and away from me where it doesn't actually impact on my life. Keeping traditions alive, sure, but just don't expect me to play along. I don't want to hear any of it because it might upset my apple cart and it might make me think that I'm not the good person that I Tell myself that I am. The good news in all of this is that although being a born-again Christian isn't particularly well-received, that isn't a terribly accurate description of what being a born-again Christian is. The fact of the matter, friends, is that every single follower of Jesus is born again. Amen? If you are a follower of Jesus, you are born again. Welcome to the club. Every single Christian, by definition, is born again if you believe what Jesus says here. My most famous, well, my favourite story about someone being born again and radically changed comes from the Ford Motor Company back in Detroit back in the day. If you know anything about the motor industry, you'll know that Detroit was sort of the home of the American sort of car industry. And old Henry Ford was still with us back in the day running his company when one of the machinists from his factory floor became a Christian, got radically set free. He was baptised and turned his life around. And one of the ways in which he decided that he needed to be a new person was that he needed to return the tools and the parts that he had stolen from the plant over his many years of working on the factory floor. He said, if I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, if I'm going to be made new, I need to confess my sins. So he turned up one day to the factory floor, fronted up to his foreman and said, here are all the parts that I've stolen. Here are all the tools that I've taken home. I want to return them. I want to confess. I want to repent. And I ask for your forgiveness. 
Well, the foreman didn't know what to do. This had never happened before. So they actually went to the trouble of wiring old Henry himself. He wasn't even in the States at the time. He was over in Europe developing a new plant over there. They explained the situation. This guy from the factory floor has been stealing, but he's become a Christian, been baptised, and he's returned it all. So what do we do, boss? The reply came back, dam up the Detroit River, baptise the entire city. (laughs) Becoming a Christian, being born again, will mean a radical change to your life. And that is what is happening here. Nicodemus is a Pharisee and he comes to Jesus at night. So there's two things here I want you to see straight off the bat. Firstly, you need to understand that Nicodemus is a member of the Sanhedrin. He's one of the ruling class. He is an insider. He is like a cross between a priest and a senator rolled into one, a very important person. He's the ultimate insider, the ultimate power broker. He is one of the leaders of Jewish society. So keep that in mind. But he comes to Jesus at night. He doesn't want to be seen. Now, this could mean a couple of things. It could simply mean that Nicodemus is, is being drawn to Jesus personally. If you've been watching The Chosen, you'll know that there's been portrayed this way, this wonderful, famous actor, I forget his name, he's playing Nicodemus, he's slowly being drawn into Jesus, but he's being held back by his pedigree and he doesn't really know which way to turn and he's terribly torn. But there is a, another probable thing that's going on here and we see it in the text in his use of the word we if you've got it open in front of you you'll see that he says we know that you are a great teacher who has come from God it seems as though Nicodemus is in fact representing the entire Jewish ruling council we think that Nicodemus has probably been sent as a bit of an ambassador trying to co-opt Jesus into their cause This is the in crowd reaching out to an outsider saying, come and join us. Come and join our party. Look at what we have to offer you. You're obviously a very gifted preacher. Why don't you come and play with us and enjoy all the benefits of being part of the establishment? You might like to think of it perhaps as the reigning premier football team reaching out to a bright young uh, talent emerging through the ranks. Matches like the Penrith Panthers have just won a premiership and they spot some talent. Come and play for us. Who wouldn't want to come and play for the reigning premiers? They're trying to lure Jesus off course to come and, come and play their game. And then we get to the first little point of application in this story. Jesus is having none of it. They start saying, he comes along with buttering Jesus up, saying, we know you're a mighty teacher. He's buttering up, complimenting him, come and be one of us. But Jesus flat out refuses, he ignores it. He cuts across Nicodemus. He just ignores him and takes the conversation in a completely different direction. Friends, don't believe your own press. Don't believe what other people say about you or even to you. Nicodemus pumps Jesus up, butters him up, but Jesus isn't having a bar of it. Quite often as as ministers, we have to learn that we're not actually as bad as what our detractors think, but neither are we as good as what the people who promote us are either. I think it's the true with anyone in, in public life, I think. I often think of politicians, that, you know, they're never actually as, as bad or as good as what their detractors or supporters say. 
I reckon the same is true of, of each of us. Don't let what other people think of you distract you from your calling. One of my elders at my previous placement said to me something that has stuck with me. What other people think of me is none of my business. Let me repeat that so that you catch that. What other people think of me is none of my business. Do you understand what she's trying to say? What other people think about me, really, I can't control. All I can do is look after me and be true to my calling. Jesus wasn't letting himself be distracted off his particular calling and neither should you. So, after seeing this sort of compliment, uh, Jesus just radically cuts Nicodemus off. And this is the next little thing that I want you to see here in this story. It's just how, in fact, rude Jesus is to Nicodemus at this point. He ignores what's just been said and takes the conversation in a completely different direction. It's a complete non sequitur, which means it doesn't follow logically on from what's been said. A non sequitur is when you're in a conversation or a debate, you say something that doesn't build on what's already been said. Nicodemus comes to Jesus saying, oh, you're a great teacher. Jesus says, yeah, forget all that. Nicodemus, you need to be born again. He's cutting across Nicodemus. Nicodemus barely gets a word in. Jesus just railroads Nicodemus. Have a look at the rest of this encounter. Read through it in your own time. Nicodemus gets in about 30 words in his opening salvo, then about another 20 when he's trying to get his head around what Jesus is saying. And then when he's back on his heels, he only gets another four words. But after that, we don't even hear from Nicodemus again. He's blown away by what Jesus is saying. Jesus says, listen, forget all of that guff. You need to be born again, Nicodemus. You think it's all about teaching. You think you, know, you don't need a good teacher. They don't need a teacher. They need a saviour. Jesus says you must be born again. Now, this is a pretty insulting thing to say to a Pharisee, to a member of the Jewish ruling class. Think about a couple of things about newborn infants. Newborn infants are completely helpless, aren't they? Carly and I have only just got to the stage where we can walk out of home and say, bye kids, we're going off to dinner. It's taken us 19 years to get to this point, to get our kids to the point where, where we trust them to be at home by themselves. And even then, a couple of them are a little bit... <laughs> it's taken us 19 years to raise these human beings. Newborn human infants are helpless. There's nothing more helpless than a newborn human infant, is there? He's saying to this very high-standing, highfalutin, button-up, very prestigious, very powerful man, you need to become like a newborn baby. This is controversial. This is scandalous stuff. The other thing I want you to hear about a newborn baby is that when it comes to new birth, really, you had no hand in it, did you? Now again, I've been present at the birth of four human beings. I can assure you that the baby has nothing to do with it. Friend, know that when a baby is born, it is through the labour of a mother. A baby is born into the world through the labour and anguish of a mother. The baby does nothing to contribute. New birth simply happens to a baby. A baby is brought into the world through a, the, 
waters mother, the, the waters of the mother break. A baby is brought into the world by the shedding of a mother's blood. It is all the mother. You had nothing to do with your birth. This speaks to the scandalous nature of grace. And yes, we need to, we have free will and we need to make the decision to surrender our lives. But the actual work of salvation is all God. He does it all. It's all Him. It's all grace. You're going to hear me saying that a lot. It's all grace. Nicodemus is coming to Jesus sort of thinking, well, we can sort of build a, a sort of a super team, assemble all the Avengers together and have all the best teachers in the land. I mean, Jesus is saying no. They don't need more teaching. They need saving. This isn't a call to just pull your socks up and try harder. If you've been trying to earn your way into God's good books by trying harder, by pulling your socks up and doing a whole bunch of that and none of that, friend, give it up. Give it up. Jesus is saying, forget all of that. It's not about being morality. In fact, this is a challenge to the morality. Nicodemus represents the morality. There's no better person in Jewish society than Nicodemus at this point. Nicodemus is the very epitome of holiness. If ever there is a good person, Nicodemus is it. And Jesus is saying, forget it all. You've got to start back at, at square one. Nicodemus objects because he can't get his head around. He said, but how can a grown man enter once again into his mother's womb and, and, be, and be born again? Jesus presses home. He doesn't let him off the hook. He said, you've got to be born again. It's a repetition. It's a literary device in verses 3 and verse 7. If you have it open in front of you, John, the writer, is really driving this point home again. Jesus, no, Nicodemus, you've got to be born again of water and the Spirit. It's a reference probably to the waters of physical childbirth. He's saying you need to be born physically like all human beings are and then you need to be born once more of the Spirit. Or alternatively, it probably has a dual meaning, being born of water is probably a reference to baptism, which itself, of course, is symbolic of new life. You go under the water, you die to self and you come up out of the water a new person. You die to self and you live for Christ. Again, Jesus is driving home this point that you must be born of water and the Spirit. He's saying, don't just try hard. Have a complete revolution in your life. Think of it this way. Imagine you're an apple farmer. Now, I know farming references don't go too well in the city of Sydney, but I'm sure you understand the concept of how apple farms work, yes? Imagine you've been apple farming, maybe for generations, Maybe you built yourself a wonderful reputation as the best apple farmers in the district, but you decide one day, I'm done with apples. The market's fallen down or something's hit the tree and you need to convert to peach. I'm going to become a peach farmer. If you want to become a peach farmer, you're going to need to do more than simply change the fertiliser you use to a peach-friendly mix. You're going to need to do more than simply start pruning your apple trees in a manner conducive to growing peaches. You're going to have to rip out those apple trees and start again. This is what Jesus is talking about here. There's a famous episode from church history uh, by, from in the life of, of Augustine or St. Augustine. He was one of the early church fathers, one of the patriarchs of the church. He was actually a bishop of, of Hippo in North Africa. The story goes that before he was a bishop and a man, mighty man of God, he was a wild child. He was a real wild man, Augustine. 
and he was living with a woman. As far as we can gather, she was a, a prostitute. He came to faith and had his life radically turned around. And this woman recognised him on the street sometime later and yelled out to him, Augustine, Augustine. But he kept on walking, thinking that he didn't recognise her. She ran after him saying, Augustine, it is I. And he turned to her and said, yes, I know, but it is no longer I. His life had been turned around. The things that he lived for now was completely different. This is what Jesus is trying to say here. He drives the point home with this reference, an obscure reference to the Old Testament from Numbers 21, if you want to have a look at it, about this obscure episode that we might not remember, even if you're a regular churchgoer, you might not be familiar with this story, but Nicodemus certainly would have been. Nicodemus would have known this story very, very well. The story goes the ancient Israelites are wandering out in the desert and they're being bitten by snakes. They've been infested with deadly snakes and they are dying. The nation of Israel has poison coursing through their bodies through this infestation of deadly snakes and they cry out to God and God tells Moses to fashion a bronze serpent. He says, fashion, make a bronze serpent, attach it to a pole and hold it up so that whoever looks to the snake will be saved. To this day, of course, the medical fraternity uses this image of a snake wrapped around a pole as a symbol of healing. And he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so too the Son of Man, meaning himself, must be lifted up in order that men must be saved. Mustn't have meant much to... Poor old Nicodemus at the time. But we do hear from Nicodemus twice more after this episode. This encounter ends and Jesus goes on his way and we know how the story ends. But when Jesus is arrested on trumped up charges in a kangaroo court, Nicodemus speaks up for him. I reckon Nicodemus was changed in this encounter. And then the next day as Jesus was lifted up, I reckon the penny dropped for Nicodemus. The last thing we hear about Nicodemus was that he teamed up with a fellow by the name of Joseph of Arimathea, took the body down and ensured that it had a proper burial. What I want you to know about this tremendous, loving and gracious act was that that was woman's work. Touching a dead body, that made you unclean. Think about this highly prestigious person, one of the leaders of Jewish society, lowering himself to do this filthy work of, of handling a dead and bloodied and beaten body, being willing to be unclean, being willing to do woman's work. What would do that to a man? I think Nicodemus had been born again. I think Nicodemus had had his life radically turned around. I reckon Nicodemus, in this encounter with Jesus Christ, was brought from darkness into light. If you're one of these people this morning that I hear fairly regularly coming to me saying, Pete, if you knew the sort of person that I was, if you knew the sort of things that I've done, if you knew my past, Pete, you wouldn't be so keen to get me into your church. If you knew what goes on in my thought life and you think you could never come to church, if that's you here this morning or watching online, I've got some good news for you. 
No one's starting behind the eight ball, not even you. We're all as helpless as newborn babes. This is why the down and the out have always been more attracted to Jesus, more easily, readily to accept Jesus' good news rather than the the puffed up and the proper and the powerful and the insiders because those sorts of people where we don't tend to like thinking that we're on the same level as everybody else. We don't like thinking we have to give up some of our power and prestige. We don't like thinking that the people in the down and outs on the street are actually on the same level as, as those of us on the inside. But that's what Jesus is saying here. There's no room for arrogance in God's church. Let me finish by quoting Galatians chapter 2. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, says Paul. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. The life I live in the body, I live by faith through Christ, through the Son of God who lives in me, lives through me. Can I challenge us this morning, church, as we begin a new chapter, we make a new start in God's church. And I think this will be a, one that the historians write about in centuries to come. The pandemic of 2020 and 2021 that the church had to deal with and transform itself, make itself new again, had to experience rebirth. I think this is a, a big moment in the life of the church. If we are to live on into the future despite declining membership, despite increasing hostility from the world, perhaps even in Western nations such as our own, it'll start with you and me. Unless we are born again, this business we call church is just too hard. It takes so many people here this morning just to put on a service this morning. It takes a lot of hard work. It costs a lot of money to maintain a building like this. It's all too much unless we are completely sold out for Jesus. Unless we are born again and have every fibre of our being driven towards knowing that we are saved by God's grace and we want to tell that good news to the world then I'll, tell you, I'll invite you now, friend, go and play golf on a Sunday morning on one of the 87 golf courses here in the eastern suburbs. We love a golf course here in the eastern suburbs, but it's much easier than doing this thing called church unless your heart is really in it. Can I invite you to surrender your life afresh this morning and commit to worshipping together, building one another up, to being reborn, to being made new, and living the rest of your life, moving towards the goal of experience that abundant, eternal resurrection life in this life and the next. Amen. I'm going to pray a prayer now that I'm simply going to invite you to pray. Perhaps you've never invited Christ into your life and you've never actually experienced rebirth. If that's you, then I invite you to pray with me now. If you have committed your life to Christ many, many years ago, it's never... Uh, it's, it's, it's never a bad thing to recommit your life to Christ. So let's do that now, friends. Let's pray. Loving Lord, we commit ourselves afresh to you this morning. We commit ourselves to rebirth. Father, where we've been tempted to think that you owe us something, where we've been tempted to think that we can do it on our own. Help us to see, Lord, that we are like naked newborn infants before you, completely and utterly dependent 
upon you, our heavenly Father, for everything that we have. If we've made this thing called church about ourselves in any way, if we've sought our own glory in any particular way, Lord, we repent of these things. We say we're living for you and for you alone, Lord. I die to self and I live for you this day. I am reborn. I am a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. In Jesus' name, the people said, Amen. Amen. I'm going to invite our band to come forward and lead us in song. You might want to uh, make this song uh, 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 a prayer. Make it an affirmation of the prayer that you've, you've just prayed. Can I invite you to spend a moment in reflection, given that we, we can't sing at this stage, but to simply make this a, a song, a, a prayer of, of praise giving your life, surrendering this next chapter of your life over to him. Thank you, Ben.